morning and welcome to Rising. Happy Monday. We have a huge show for you today. <laughs> Number of exciting guests, great topics. Hello, Brianna. Hello, Robbie. How was your weekend? It was good. It was busy. It's good to be back. I feel like yeah. there's been a lot of news that I'm looking forward to getting right into it. Yeah, me too. I uh, went to Denver this weekend. Did I did really? uh, with my boys from high school and it's like the Cornell track team. And we were, they're like in way better shape than I am. We did pickleball and golf and hiking, and it's like the most physical exertion I've ever had in my 30s, but it was a lot of fun. That feels really wholesome, Robbie. It was wholesome. I lay in bed all weekend <laughs> and looked at Twitter, as those of you who are online probably know, but we'll yes, get to we some are, of that later in the we show. We are definitely gonna hit that a little bit later, but first. All right, well, summer is over officially on Capitol Hill. I'm in my Annie Hall fall gear, <laughs> and also Congress has returned from its August recess, and House Republicans are back on the impeachment grind. Oversight Committee Chairman James Comer told Newsmax last week that an impeachment inquiry would give more weight to the committee's attempts to investigate President Biden's alleged pay-for-play influence peddling scheme. Mm. While new criminal charges have yet to be filed against Hunter Biden, the president and his son are going on the offensive in the court of public opinion. Hunter Biden's allies are going into full attack mode against Republicans in this next Congress. Gloves are off, families are on, per reporting in Puck News. Meanwhile, writers of the New York Times offered a sympathetic profile of the Biden family in a new piece published this weekend. Per the Times, quote, the president plunged into sadness and frustration when Hunter Biden's plea deal fell apart. Since then, his tone in conversations about his son has been tinged with a resignation that was not there before, end quote. Per the Times, President Biden has, quote, kept Hunter close despite the political peril. The possibility of a federal indictment of Hunter Biden stunned the president, yet the bond between him and his only surviving son is, quote, ironclad. Buried later in the Times story is this admission. Allies to the president say his, quote, inability to say no to Hunter caused, at the minimum, avoidable political distractions. Mm, that is quite the admission. Because, I mean, this is... This is a problem for Democrats because, as we talked about last week uh, with Michael Rosa, Biden overpromised yes. when he was describing the distance between him and his son. Making statements about how there was no discussion of his business dealings whatsoever makes him seem less credible when there is some evidence of some discussion there, even if it is de minimis and not particularly substantial. The question is, if you were misrepresenting that much, what else have you been misrepresenting? And an admission like that in this article really speaks to that idea that the closeness, the relationship that he's touted as an attribute of him and his family so often might have led him to be uncareful, not necessarily having broken any law, the Republicans have yet to prove that, but at very least not very careful. And so does that warrant then further investigation? Right. Right, which is what Republicans are campaigning on. It's one of the most central issues to the Republican Party right now to focus on what's going on in Congress, um, the, the additional investigations, and this plea deal. And that, that's an interesting detail to know that uh, Joe Biden was concerned, was dismayed about the plea deal falling apart. Obviously, that could be dismay for the situation that puts his son in, the possibility of jail charges. There could also be some dismay of what that means for additional investigations, because remember, this plea deal was going to totally shield Hunter Biden from any further inquiry, potentially into um, potential wrongdoing with Burisma and influence peddling that might have reflected poorly on Joe Biden. So he could be shedding tears for his son's fate and also his own uh, odds of facing more serious talk of impeachment right. or investigation. And correct me if I'm wrong, but the <clears throat> part of the plea deal, the, the plea deal didn't fall through because it fell through. The plea deal fell through because 
Hunter Biden. Because the judge looked attorneys, under the hood. Well, he, the Hunter Biden's attorneys decided that absent the um, protection from further investigation, yes. they didn't want to take the remaining yes. deal. But the substance of the remaining deal could have remained intact insofar as it allowed him to avoid the jail time, et cetera. So I think there is a little bit of confusion that's happening here, where if the concern is really just, I don't want my son to have to face jail time, I think that was still on yes. the table. But they blew up the entire thing because it really was, apparently from the perspective of Hunter Biden's camp and lawyer team and him himself, all about shielding himself from immunity right. from not unrelated investigations. Right. After the judge pointed out how unusual this deal was, that it was, you know, suggesting that it was almost prosecutorial malpractice yeah. to include it, which, you know, something the judge can do in cases, can, can say, hey, you know, this deal that's put together is very bad. <laughs> I'm going to make sure everyone understands what's going on here. Well, that seemed to be the case. And as you point out, Hunter Biden's team only wanted it with that protection, yeah. which is very telling. Yeah. Now, let me ask you a political question. There's a part of me that wants to dive into what will it mean for Joe Biden if there's an impeachment? Does this basically cancel out for folks uh, what Donald Trump is going through with the four indictments? Does it not really matter to Democratic voters the way that it doesn't really matter to Donald Trump voters, given that what, three quarters of voters and a substantial number of Democrats don't want Joe Biden to be the nominee? Is this more damning for him than it would be for Donald Trump? But another part of me says none of that is going to be relevant because because of the news events over the weekend, more footage that we're going to talk about later of uh, Joe Biden not seeming like his best self in Vietnam, it, increasing chatter about alternative Democratic nominees, that it's looking more and more likely to me that he just might not be the nominee in the first place. I know, yeah, you keep saying that. And look, I, I, I understand, obviously, many Democrats want a different nominee. A majority of Democrats want mm -hmm. a different nominee. He is historically old. Um, he seems increasingly <laughs> recently in just the weeks. For president. For someone running for office yeah. again. He's the oldest of all time. Yeah. Um, he is. In his remarks recently, he seemed so disoriented. So, and, and, and people are paying special attention to all this now with Mitch McConnell, with Dianne Feinstein. Yeah. We're all doing, we're all spectating the elderly in government. It's it kind of sick, age. but it's not our fault. We, we should say this because there was one um, political commentator, uh, a, a Biden booster who's of some note we've talked about in the past on the show, who was irritated on Twitter over the weekend because people were wishing Bernie Sanders a happy birthday at the same time that the timeline was criticizing Dianne Feinstein, yeah. uh, sorry, um, Nancy Pelosi for announcing another term. And she was saying, well, this is sexist and hypocritical. Of course one, the issue yeah. is that Bernie Sanders isn't announcing another Senate term. Maybe he would also get pushback for that. But also, right. the conversation really should be about people's mental capacity and their substantive policy record. Right. Bernie not Sanders doesn't seem age. that old. Donald Trump, frankly, doesn't seem that and old. Frankly, Nancy Pelosi doesn't seem old. No. The issue there is substantively whether people like her politics or not. Right. And whether, why does she have to stay? She's, she retired as leader of the right. caucus. Does, is she still belong in Congress? Right. But the, the Biden thing is not his age. It's I his behavior. I just don't know who... I don't disagree with you on, on any of that. I just think by the, the person who gets to decide that there will be no more Biden, uh, Biden government sure. is Biden himself. Yes. I, I don't see, especially on the Democratic side, who pushes him out? Who, what is the secret cabal of insider, smoke-filled room people who say, no more Biden? Well, We're I, I, look, I, I don't know who that is. I think that's Biden. Many people believe that that cabal definitely exists because they, they see the coordinated mechanism of the Democratic Party being able to, for example, in 2020, say, despite uh, Pete Buttigieg being probably the most successful person not named Bernie Sanders in the Democratic primary to date, 
Barack Obama was able to get on the call and get him, uh, Amy Klobuchar, all of the centrists that were coming in first or second place in those early primary contests and drop out and coalesce behind Joe Biden to defeat Bernie Sanders, who was an th outsider threat to the Democratic Party establishment. Obviously, Democratic Party has the capacity to do that. I mean, sort if of thing. Obama makes the call to Biden to retire early, I don't know what that. It, maybe that does it. I don't know. But maybe, maybe it actually will come from Biden himself, though, because there does seem to be. It is getting to a place of. I don't think that. I of, don't believe. I don't think so. Well, I don't. I don't want to step on a, a future segment. Yeah, we're so, talk about this we'll, but we'll 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 dive into specifically what behaviors out of this uh, Vietnam trip are causing people to have so many questions about whether or not he really has the mental fitness to lead. Yeah, more rising right after this. Everything is clearer in hindsight. Does that work as a COVID lockdown excuse? California Governor Gavin Newsom was pressed about certain decisions that he made during the COVID lockdowns during a recent interview on MSNBC's Meet the Press. Let's watch. You found a way to allow the motion picture industry and, Southern, and, the, and the sort of the movie industry to get back to work. But you didn't allow people to grieve together at funerals or at churches. And that it sort of and that this may be why there's such a polarized disconnect. What, what you prioritize, right, this is this anger between the populace and the elite, supposedly. Here, you prioritize this industry, but, you, you know, you were tougher on those that just wanted to go worship. Um, a, what do you say to that, Chris? I think there's a lot of humility, and we didn't know what we didn't know, and it was hardly I. Uh, it was we, collectively. I and I think all of us, in, in terms of our collective wisdom, We've evolved. We didn't know what we didn't know. We're experts in hindsight. We're all geniuses. But now think about what we prior what you pri what you ended up collectively prioritizing. You're prioritizing yeah. industry, you know, well, in one and, and one specific one, but then didn't prioritize maybe ones that whose maybe values you didn't connect with. Well, I don't think it's a binary. There was iterations within that theme. Uh, interesting. Do you think that this is a important mea culpa moment for uh, Gavin Newsom here? Do you think that he, he finally had like a, a liberal commentator asking him questions about whether his COVID policy was, in retrospect, bad? Yeah, I mean, his answer there doesn't make any sense. I mean, sure, yes, we didn't know at the time what we didn't know, but you, you could have known that, as Chuck Todd then got into, prioritizing one, in, you know, uh, uh, making it work for the entertainment industry, but still having like churches and restaurants closed down, to the, and and then also you know not just recommending but forcing on people um, restrictions uh, related to like masks indoors, and then you yourself violating those in his famous oh, French sure. laundry moment. Yeah. So it, it's not it's not like I, I made everybody do something that later turned out to be dumb. Although that would still be plenty of reason to punish a political figure. Yeah. But it's I made some people do things and other people do different things in a scene arbitrary basis or maybe because of my own personal views or, or or who's important to me as a donor or you know political constituent or whatever it is and I felt like not following the rules yeah that, that my only pushback to Chuck Todd there would be like you, you said it it's about valuing industry a yeah. lot of COVID decisions were made to protect the economy and businesses it, I don't think it was because uh, Gavin Newsom doesn't care about churchgoers and he secretly cares about Hollywood people. I, I think know. it was he a might business. Have, well, I think I think if there was a church group that was big business, I think if the big Scientology was going to give him a big fat check and said, "Let me keep my services open or whatever," well, that might have also had the same amount of sway. Today is going to be the first day since I've hosted this show that Scientology is going to come up twice. <laughs> <'Cause> <laughs> really? We're talking about it later. Um, 
I, I mean, I would push back on that. I, I, I see, I, I don't know, I can't see into Gavin Newsom's heart, but I would understand why conservatives in particular might feel like he doesn't have as much of an interest in making, you know, very religious, church-going people who tend to be conservative happy compared California, to his connections to the... I mean, there are Republicans, look, there are conservatives guys, in California. Yeah, but most people in America are religious, regardless of their political affiliation. I mean, they're, most they're, normal church... People who go to church on a regular basis, like a very strictly regular basis, are disproportionately conservative. The most church-going people in America are black. Well, and they're more conservative and Latino, than like, but other, that's, Well, they're right-wing. Cultural conservatism and voting for Democrats yeah. versus Republicans are two different things. So I'm not... Like, the, the, we are all in the elite sphere or whatever, yeah. largely out of touch. Most people are religious. Most people go to church. Gavin Newsom might not. I don't know his life. Gavin Newsom might not. But all of the inconsistency with COVID policy can be traced down, in my view, to people wanting not to ruin the economy. So schools stay closed because people don't make money off of schools. It's a public good. Whereas restaurants stayed open because right. people were saying, you know, including for constituents who are restaurant owners and the like, that I'm going to be bankrupt if you don't let my, my restaurant open. It's not deeper than that. And you can think that's a good decision or a bad decision. But a lot of the inconsistency, I think, that people got caught up in and exposed over was because they weren't just being honest about the fact that there were economic priorities that were ruling the day as opposed to just strict public health concerns. Right. I mean, I view that as a good thing because sure. I didn't want these well, I mean, whatever. things in place anyway. So the fact that there was some, and, and in fact, I would point to the fact that schools stayed closed longer than anything, and the fact that that had nothing to do with um, health, you know, the reality of the health situation, but just because the, the political um, power in the education industry, they had more ability to keep things shut down than the restaurants who at, at some point needed money. Although they also got put in a, you know, very bad, many yeah. of them precarious place where, you know, tons of restaurants closed during the sure. pandemic. Sure, for sure. Um, because things stayed closed longer than they wanted to and some, you know, people didn't want to go and there were still restrictions, that kind of thing. Well, in that same interview, uh, Newsom also weighed in on Senator Dianne Feinstein's seat as three California Democrats, including Katie Porter, Adam Schiff, and Barbara Lee, vie to replace the sitting senator. Do you feel as if the staff is fulfilling, can do the duties? Yes. I don't think it. I know it. We're working extraordinarily closely You don't together. feel as if the state's losing out by not having no. a more active voice? Uh, maybe missing Senate. town halls or more active. But, I, you know, Senator Padilla was just in the office a few days ago. We were comparing contrasts. Asking issues and advocacy, and we're aligned with with Feinstein in her office. Sounds like you hope you don't issues. have to make another appointment. No, I don't want to make another appointment. I don't think the people of California want me to make another appointment. Because you'd end up appointing both seats. Yeah. Yeah, and, not, and I don't think that's you know. Um, that said, it's my job. It's my responsibility. If we have to do it, we'll do it. Uh, You're gonna abide by your pledge. Yeah, interim appointment. I don't want to get involved in the primary. So no, you would not appoint anybody. That, on that is that is filed for this race. It would be completely unfair to the Democrats that have worked their tail off. That primary is just a matter of months away. I, I don't want to tip uh, the balance of that. But you're going to abide by it would be a, essentially a caretaker, an African-American woman. Uh, we hope we never have to make this decision, but I, I, I abide by what I've said very publicly on a consistent basis, yes. So he's getting caught up there because, as people might recall, he promised to appoint an African-American woman. Now that there are three people actively running for the seat, only one of them is black, the perception is, well, then he would be waiting the exactly in a way that would be unfair. So now I guess the way that he's parsing this is to say, I'm going to get some unnamed, unknown some other, yeah. seat warmer to hold the, the space for the next couple of months if it 
is the case that Dianne Feinstein is no longer able to yeah. serve. He tried to just do an identity politics, and then other people were like, well, no, I'm, I'm in fact going to seek this seat. There's going to be right. a democratic process. Right. And uh, he, I mean, he just put himself in that position unnecessarily. Didn't Wasn't there a recent reporting uh, just last week uh, more on Dianne Feinstein that the situation with the daughter, um, I, she was she was asked about the, you know, the daughter having the power of attorney, and she was she confused. She was confused about it. She didn't yeah. know. Um, look, I, I think... I don't think anyone watching seriously believes that it would be satisfied with his answer there that, oh, no, we're, we're working closely with her and her staff, and it's all great, and there's nothing to be concerned about, and, and the people don't want, actually want me to replace her. That seems laughable to me. Yeah, okay, I guess if, if the staff is always capable of doing the job, well, what, what are we, what are we, we're just electing, it doesn't matter, it, then it yeah. literally doesn't matter who you elect. Yeah. I, I, it seems not, I, I don't think that's what people believe. I, I completely agree. Look, Gavin Newsom, I think, is also treading in particularly hot political water because at the same time that he's dealing with this bit of a mess in California, he's very much been soft pitching himself, in many people's view, as a potential replacement for Joe Biden should he Supposedly, not be able to well, take but over. Supposedly, well, he said— and so this, this is the, the new news, is that he was asked squarely about this, and the response that he gave was not only that he was not planning to run for office, but that he felt like he was not the right, the next one up in the line of succession, specifically saying that Kamala Harris, it's, it's her turn, if Let's you will. We have the clip. Past. President Biden doesn't run. Why shouldn't we consider you a likely candidate? I think the vice president is naturally one lined up, and the filing deadlines are quickly coming to pass. And I think we need to move past this notion that he's not going to run. President Biden is going to run, uh, and we're looking forward to getting him reelected. Uh, I think there's been so much wallowing uh, in the last few months and hand wringing in this respect, uh, but we're gearing up for the campaign. We're looking forward to it. I, I under, you know, but. You hear these calls privately. What do you tell these donors who are wallowing in this? Uh, time to move on. Let's go. And am I supposed to interpret that comment about the vice president, that if for some reason the president chose not to run at this point, well, that's the next, everybody the, rallies around the, her? It's the Biden-Harris administration. That's a, maybe I'm a little old-fashioned. Yeah, maybe you I'm a little... Yeah, and we'll save the Biden-will-he-run speculation for additional segment, because we are still going to talk about it a little bit more. But um, there, Newsom seeming to say something that I've actually said a mm -hmm. bunch of times that, no, there's going to be a tremendous institutional uh, push to have Kamala Harris foisted on us either in 2024 or, I think, more likely 2028. There he's saying he, that he's almost maybe just going to let her have her turn whenever it occurs. Do you believe him? Uh, so you have been saying this. I don't think it's an institutional push. I think this is a choice that's being made. I perfectly believe that there is a strategic decision that's been made behind closed doors, that Kamala is the, the person that they've chosen. But I absolutely believe that if Gavin Newsom or any number of other candidates, potential candidates, decided that they wanted to succeed Biden and skip over Kamala Harris, that there certainly is plenty of public support behind that, very little public support behind defending Kamala Harris, especially given that there's any number of people of also diverse backgrounds who sure, can make a well, claim. Sure, and all of the claims, oh, you're getting in the way of a black woman, yada, yada, yada. It's her turn, Brianna. I don't, I just... It's her turn. <laughs> Hillary when Clinton, has that ever gone wrong? It's her turn. Hillary ruined that. Yeah. You see what Gavin's mixed up in with the I'm going to appoint a black woman stuff in California and how that's backfired. People are largely over that. And I even think that because black, because Black people don't especially support Kamala Harris. She never ranked particularly high among black voters, even when she was running for office. Bernie, Bernie outpaced Kamala Harris two to one with black voters in the 2020 race. That there was no organic 
people-led reason not to skip over her. And if the Democratic Party decides to skip over her, they can't. You're saying that, Brianna, but for some reason, I can't remember seeing a lot of those news articles in the New York Times and the Washington Post that are all, does Kamala Harris have a problem with black voters? (laughs) I just can't remember any of those. I'm I'm sure they existed, if you you say that was was a More rising right after this. New Mexico now seems to think that the First and Second Amendment don't exist if you simply declare a public emergency. The state's governor, Michelle Luan Grisham, a Democrat, signed an emergency order on Friday that will bar firearms from being carried in public in Albuquerque. Grisham said she was compelled to act due to a series of shootings in the city, including one that killed an 11-year-old boy outside a baseball game this week and a group of targeted shootings against Muslim men in the last month. But even gun rights advocates and Democrats are showing some concern here. Parkland activist David Hogue tweeted, I support gun safety, but there is no such thing as state public health emergency exception to the U.S. Constitution. And Democrat Ted Lieu responded, I support gun safety laws. However, this order from the governor of New Mexico violates the U.S. Constitution. No state in the union can suspend the federal constitution. There is no such thing as a state public health emergency exception to the U.S. Constitution. I have to say, as someone who supports the Second Amendment, I'm very heartened to see uh, those admissions from people who um, support policies that I don't support concede that even if you think the law should change, no governor just has the power to suspend a constitutional right. Um, and, and this is you know, what a lot of people of, of, a, of an anti-authoritarian, freedom-loving bent were worried about with COVID emergencies, that this was going to become a regular and routine thing where government officials, sometimes not even elected ones, this is an elected one, but sometimes even at the more bureaucratic level, can just declare, oh, there's a public health emergency. And, now, and, we, and often gun control or you know, the firearms is considered a public health problem by, uh, by people who uh, advocate on that issue. So uh, you get a very broad mandate then, if that's your philosophy, to just enact policy on the fly that seems um, very likely to be challenged on a constitutional basis. Yeah, I mean, I do think it's important to distinguish between those rights that are constitutionally protected and those aren't. Many of the COVID-era policies that people perceive to be authoritarian overreach you're perfectly legitimate in thinking that is the case, but weren't necessarily constitutionally implicated with the way the Second Amendment rights are constitutionally Im- implicated. And at least for a lot of these Democrats who are criticizing um, this policy, that is where the line is being drawn. And it does speak to the value of having a Bill of Rights, constitutionally protected, inalienable uh, rights here. David Hogue, uh, in particular, is perhaps the most famous uh, activist for people who have been victims of gun violence. Right, a survivor of the Parkland shooting. Right. And I do think it was, represents a real turning point and it reflects how out of step uh, this New Mexico yes. order is that he would come out so forcefully against this in a way that had the potential to rankle a lot of his allies in this space, the leader in this space. Same with Ted Lieu. And I do wonder if having this kind of pushback is going to um, incline uh, the New Mexico government governor to take a step back. Yeah. In, in interviews, in her discussions about honestly, she doesn't seem she doesn't seem confident whatsoever that what she's doing is constitutional. Mm-hmm. And there's a, I mean, I think this is a real problem. Knowingly do, doing something that you 
concede the doubts as to whether it is legal are mm -hmm. extremely valid. Um, raise, I know there are some Republicans now in the state who are considering, like, an impeachment effort. Mm. Um, there are um, some local um, uh, uh, police and officials who, who say they're not, you know, not, not even in a particularly defiant way, saying they're not sure they will enforce this, mm -hmm. because, given that the, the governor herself, the person implementing it, has serious mm -hmm. concerns about whether it's constitutional. Um, that seems, and, and it is going to be, it's being channel, uh, challenged by um, local and national gun rights groups. Um, so it only applies to Bernalillo County, mm. which is uh, where Albuquerque is. Um, many, you know, she said she's concerned about this number of shootings that have happened. Um, not all of them even happened in this county where the order is mm. going into effect. Um, it's interesting. So you're not, you don't have to like, you're not having your guns confiscated. You can still have guns on private property. But this is if they're being transported across public property. Um, you can't do that, or you have to have them in like a locked container, or you have to have a locking mechanism on the weapon. I mean, I think it's probably rational to wonder whether this measure is even. Taylor is even like going to have a positive effect. Because, I mean, some of these some of these shootings were uh, maybe the the shooting the one shooting where a, a boy was shot after a baseball game by like an enraged person. If that person's gun had been locked and they had maybe that, but some of these were like gang shootings where I don't like the people they're not gonna they're not gonna say oh I was. You know, I, I was planning to kill a rival gang member, but I'm not going to do that because now I'm required to transport my weapon across the, the street in a lock. Like that's like not that doesn't seem the the targeting of Muslim men. Similarly, someone who is a you know a virulent bigot who's just out to kill people because of right. their faith. I was planning to kill someone, but now there is an emergency like declaration this. saying that I cannot transport this weapon. Oh, oh, in my pocket yeah. if I go in the street. But so now I will not murder someone. Now, right? The, the <laughs> problem with that, then, the natural extension of that logic that you, I think you're completely right about is if the argument is what gets to the root of preventing people from doing these crimes in the first place, I mean, the tension that we all end up getting ourselves into is, well, it's about access to the gun in the first instance. And preventing the crazy uh, Islamophobe or the person who shot this young boy or people who are doing gang violence meet from getting guns mm -hmm. probably means putting broader restrictions on the accessibility of guns, whether it's stricter background tests, whether it's limits on how many guns you can have, whether or not it's ratcheting up the cost of bullets so that it costs $10,000 if you really want to kill somebody. And those kinds of interventions have also been challenged by the gun lobby and lawful gun users as being draconian and extreme. And so we are now living in this country where we're in a detente where I think one, I think it was after uh, Uvalde, one, um, I think, Texas representative asked on the, on the steps of the Capitol what to do about this. He's like, this is just what it is, is that periodically we're going to have school shootings because this is the consequence of valuing a certain access to guns and freedom. And people really criticize that, but I think there is something that's clarifying about that. Well, we live in a country where this is going to happen because we have made a decision as a society that access to guns broadly speaking, for lawful gun owners, is worth it if it means having these kind of trade-offs. And that's just what it is. I don't is. think we need necessarily need to consign ourselves to having all of these gun deaths, because as, as you note, you know, most people who own firearms uh, own firearms legally 
don't do anything wrong with them. Most people are responsible gun owners. But you ha where you have serious crime, it's usually with people who have an, are possess an illegal handgun for a variety of reasons. Either they have a prior conviction, they're not supposed to have a gun, How do you they didn't that? register that gun. Well, you need to enforce it. You need to arrest more people for illegally, for not for just carrying weapons, but for carrying, for having possessing a weapon that they are not entitled and allowed to have. And I don't have any problem with more enforcement of that. Yeah. A lot of people will end up having more enforcement of that because it's going to end up falling on um, disproportionately well, no, lower the, class, impoverished communities. What does that enforcement look like? Does it mean that you stop and frisk people does that mean? And what are the? Civil I mean, no, because stop and frisk was found to be unconstitutional. But what are the civil libertarian implications right. of saying that if you are black and Latino between the ages of 15 and 35 in an urban area, you will be stopped and frisked and patted down on the street? Oh, and several times in the course of the year, as was the case for those demographic groups in New York during the Bloomberg stop and frisk era. You were guaranteed, basically, if you fit the description, if you were just the, mm -hmm. you know, what some small fraction of anybody in, in America ever commits a crime. But every black and I saw my brother get pulled over and yeah. harassed by the police with his looking like Steve Urkel self. <laughs> you know, so I, I... Well, stop and frisk was, it, which is, we can't do it because it's unconstitutional. I wouldn't want to do it anyway. It's so unconstitutional. that's the problem. Like, if that's, we, we get up against the, the, this barrier of what, well, realistically speaking, there are no, I think, legal mechanisms that protect people's rights that actually are able to get guns off the street, especially when we have in this country three times as many guns, guns as every American. It's a legitimately difficult problem. I don't want to, but there, there had to be law enforcement anyway. And I don't want to have, I don't want to confiscate guns from people who have them legally and are doing nothing wrong with them. Yeah, we need to confiscate them from the problem population. They're out there and they're trying, and police budgets balloon. But people I mean, but, in but, cities like Chicago deal with the fact that you have stricter gun laws in a democratic state. Most of the laws from uh, guns that are in Chicago are made in neighboring red states with lax gun laws and are brought up across the border. How do you address a gun problem? when you're not going to address the volume of guns that are being manufactured Wait. and the ease with which people can get them at these gun markets and stuff with l no license and very little hoops to jump through. Let me just say one more thing. Sure. I don't, so stop and frisk was a policy of just, like they would literally, oh, you're, walk, you're a black teenager walking home from school, let's just have a quick stop and yeah. pat down. With, with no reason, no, they didn't need any suspicion or anything like that, obviously, blatantly unconstitutional. Yeah. We should not return to that. We should have never had it. Um, but prosecutors in many jurisdictions don't bring um, gun char charges against people for illegally possessing weapons, um, even if it was the, in the event of, of following a proper investigation where someone was stopped for a valid reason. And that is, in that case, I would want to see more prosecutions. Well, the, the only caveat I would say is that the police, as you're now many Republicans are realizing with the Donald Trump investigations, et cetera, you can find reasons that give you technical cause while still targeting people for political reasons. And you see instances of people, uh, oftentimes poorer people who are more likely to have a broken taillight that they haven't been able to get fixed or licenses that are out of date on their cars. Things like that are disproportionately pulled over. And technically, there is legal cause for it. Technically, it's a valid stop. But what you're basically saying is that certain kinds of people inevitably are going to have their civil liberties stripped, and they're going to be targeted by the police as a consequence of this policy. And again, th 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 this is the core issue. There's no way out of it. There's no way out of it. To, to, live, to live peacefully and to never have any bad things happen, 
you are either going to have to get to the root of the problem and say, well, maybe we don't want to live in a country where there's so many guns. Maybe we want to have more penalties for gun manufacturers. Maybe we want to stop this at the source. Or alternatively, you start to chip away at people's civil liberties. And that's what we're looking at in New, in New Mexico. Right. I mean, people are going to have to decide which, they, which way they want it. So, uh, but it seems even uh, many Democrats or many people who support gun control otherwise recognize that this, is, uh, this was a bold and very fraught step for the government to take. So we'll see what becomes of that declaration. We'll have more rising right after this. President Biden visited Vietnam over the weekend to solidify economic ties with that country. But what might have stuck more were some awkward moments from a news conference that had the Internet ablaze. Biden capped off his trip to Asia and Hanoi, delivering a news conference in which he only took questions from five pre-selected media members. And now I will take your questions. Let me see. They told me they gave me five people here. Now, Biden uh, was abruptly cut off by White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre, ending the presser very abruptly. Take a look. We talked about we talked about at the conference overall. We talked about stability. We talked about making sure that the third world, the uh, excuse me, third world, the uh, the the, uh, the southern hemisphere had access to change. It had access. We, it wasn't confrontational at all. Thank, thank you, everybody. This ends the press conference. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Before being rushed off stage, however, Biden addressed the press in the G20 Leaders Summit, one point quoting a John Wayne movie in an attempt to take a swipe at climate deniers. Let's watch that. My brother loves heaven. There's famous lines from movies that he always quotes. You know, and one of them is there's, there's a movie about John Wayne. He's an Indian scout. And they're trying to get the, I think it was the Apache, one of the great tribes of America back on the reservation. And he's standing with the Union, so he's, they're all on, they're in their, on their horses and their saddles. And there's three or four Indians in headdresses and the Union soldiers. And the Union soldiers basically saying, the Indians, come with me, we'll take care of you, we'll be, everything will be good. And the Indian scout, the Indian looks at John Wayne and points to the Union soldier and says, he's a lion dog-faced pony soldier. Well, there's a lot of lion dog-faced pony soldiers out there about, about global warming. We reached out to the White House for comment, and this was the response that we got. It doesn't sound like you attended the press conference. The president planned for five questions and ended up taking seven. Kareem called the press conference to a close when it was done. As normal, the president gave detailed answers about the progress made in his marathon G20 meetings, the U.S.-China relationship, his Indo-Pacific strategy, and climate change. Here are some stories from reporters who were actually there. The AP, Biden says U.S. outreach to Vietnam is about providing global stability, not containing China. New York Times, Biden hails an upgrade in U.S.-Vietnam relations amid Chinese aggression in the region. CBS, Biden calls for stability in U.S.-China relationship. I don't want to contain China. The Guardian, Joe Biden calls for stable U.S.-China relationship during Southeast Asia tour. Great. Some glowing headlines there. Cool. So back to the issue at hand. I think he's calling us lying <laughs> dog-faced dog pony soldiers. Look, I... I I have no quibble with the idea that Biden was only supposed to take five questions. 
I even will credit him for taking more questions than was initially planned, although that in and of itself could be taken as evidence that he was not able to follow the script or the plan of the evening. What was obviously notable that the White House seems not to be willing to respond to is that Korea Jean-Pierre didn't cut him off after the seventh question. She cut him off in the middle of his answer to the seventh question. And not only did she choose to interrupt the president in the middle of answering a question and start playing, I don't know if she played it or the event space played it, what sounded like Oscar playoff music for when your speech is going on too long, <laughs> but that it happened after Biden seemed to be having difficulty finding words. Look. Whom amongst us has not forgotten the term global south? It is a relatively new term. Like, I don't judge him for that. But the fact that it, what it felt like was that whoever cut him off, apparently Karine Jean-Pierre, was nervous about his inability to wrap that question up, that he was stumbling through things, that he told this bizarre anecdote about dog-faced pony soldiers that he's been warned against telling in the past right. because it's so off-putting. Well, because he, in, in 2020, he said this to a constituent, to a, a possible yeah. voter at a, uh, at a town hall type event who had asked him reasonably, you know, given given your advanced age and uh, the, the fact that you hadn't won, I, mean, I think this was maybe New Hampshire and he hadn't won Iowa, so the, the question was asked, why should we get behind you? And he said, um, and he said uh, that you, he, he called her that lying dog-faced pony <laughs> soldier. It's a really weird, awkward moment. He's done it before. Um, I guess that's a famous Biden gaffe or something, but he, he brought yeah. it out again. Um, he does have this there are times in the past at press conferences when he was still doing them with some regularity, which is not the, you know, he doesn't do as many press conferences. Even Trump did. Trump loved doing the press conferences. Mm -hmm. Biden leaves it to Karine Jean-Pierre. But where he'd be like, they'd say it's done, and they'd be like, no, you know, I, they don't want, they don't want to, they, you know, his own handlers, his own team, right. they don't want me to talk to you more, but I'm going to talk to you more because I'm a man of the people. Gosh darn it. Right. So maybe they were going for that here, but it was poorly, if so, it was poorly organized and just, it seemed disorganized, it seemed disorganized and that he seems totally clueless to what the program is. Right. I mean, and another clip that was going viral from this exact same event, the same um, remark, these same remarks, he said, uh, I'm just following my orders here and I don't know about you, but I'm going to go to bed. And people were making a lot of that. So again, it's one of these like, my team is telling me this, but I want to do this, or I'm just following orders. People were reading into that, that he doesn't have control over his own schedule, that he's not the one that's really making decisions. And obviously, I'm going to go to bed. It, it does give the implication that he is not someone with a lot of stamina. Um, that he Which this whole trip is supposed to disabuse people of this notion, right. because it's a you know a marathon of five days. International travel is, ex is exhausting for normal people, often. Right. Um, and now he gets to do it in, you know, great comfort on Air Force One and all that. Right. But, you know, if they're trying to prove to people that he's up for this, that he's up for another five years of this, I don't know that they're doing a good job. And, in fact, if, if people are paying attention, which maybe they're not, but if anyone who is paying attention and has questions about Biden's fitness to do this in the future, yeah. are they being set at ease by this kind of thing? I doubt it. I can't see how you possibly could be set at ease. Right. And, and again, I just want to say, like, just because someone says, all right, I've got to go to bed, people are allowed to be tired or allowed to be tired when you take a 17-hour trip or whatever it is to the other side of the world. Like, I, But it's all of these things in tandem. And I honestly do think that the worst thing optically to come out of this particular event was Karine Jean-Pierre's cutting him off mid-sentence, because that feels like a vote of no confidence from his team, as opposed to Biden just being Biden right. on They stage. don't want to, because they cringe and they don't want to hear his right. long, rambling anecdotes 
for any longer. Yeah. He had that, he had a, a, a wreath-laying moment where he yeah. looked so old as well. You were showing me that was, before we played stiff. this. Yeah. Look, and again, I, I saw a comedian, oh, it wasn't a comedian, it was um, the, the Brian Cox, who plays the father on Succession. Yeah. Uh, he was joking on a Tonight Show, and he wasn't being critical of Biden substantively, but he was saying, you know, people who run all the time, you're, you guys are messed up. You're the ones with the bad knee problem. I've been sitting on a couch all my life, and look at me. I'm the same age as Biden, and I'm limber as could be. So it could just be yeah. evidence that Biden has been an active person, and his joints are worn out, and it has nothing to do with his cognitive fitness. But again, I, I, I'm much less concerned about whether or not he slowly lays a wreath, although it's not good optics, than I am his... Um, mental, uh, his, his, his cognitive lapses, if you will. Yeah. And we'll have more rising right after this. Robert F. Kennedy Jr.'s campaign manager, Dennis Kucinich, sent two letters last week to Democratic National Committee Chair Jamie Harrison, one in which he requested a meeting between Harrison and the presidential hopeful, also asking for more transparency in what has turned out to be a nominating process shrouded in secrecy from the RFK Jr. campaign. Meanwhile, Kennedy blasted the DNC, which has thrown its weight behind Biden, saying they have no appetite for a primary. Speaking to Forbes, he addressed the party's effort to cast him aside and how he might circumvent the party's arm altogether. Let's listen. Is they've moved the um, the Iowa primary. They've made rules that if anybody campaigns in Iowa or sets foot, any candidate sets foot in the state of Iowa or sets foot in the state of New Hampshire, that none of the votes that are cast for that candidate will be uh, will be tallied. In other words, any delegate that I win in New Hampshire or Iowa would go instead uh, to the president. If you add up all the superdelegates that they control and all of the automatic delegates that just go to the party and go to the president, uh, you know, I would have to win almost uh, 80% of all of the states. Here to discuss further is politics reporter for Semaphore, Dave Weigel. Good to be here. Thanks, guys. Yeah, so, you know, you followed um, some of the uh, RFK Jr. campaign drama. Uh, it seems that, you know, the, the campaign is increasingly frustrated trying to make its way in, in the Democratic Party's nominating process to the extent any process is taking place. Um, how do you see this unfolding? Yeah, well, as far as the DNC is concerned, uh, and they'll say so on the record, but they don't have a sign on their website or something to make it easy. Uh, they've endorsed Joe Biden. This is the party that will renominate Joe Biden at the convention next year. They, they view this primary the way that the Trump campaign viewed the 2020 primary, which is that, OK, other people might run in it. But we're the party if, uh, apparatus supports this uh, president. Kennedy, you saw in that statement what he's doing is just trying to change the reality here and say, no, this is an open primary and they should they should treat it as such. What he's also doing in that statement, though, is suggesting that uh, he is he, he might be denied the nomination by superdelegates. He's very far away off uh, getting that nomination right now. And, and we'll probably get into this. But just Kennedy uh, got into the race. His polling was higher than Democrats expected. It's it actually dipped since then as he's gotten better known among Democrats. And he's he's polling at a level where he would not threaten uh, Joe Biden's nomination as it stands. Well, right. I mean, I do think that that's a double-edged sword 
a lot mm -hmm. of at this stage, a diff, especially with anybody going up against an incumbent, uh, it, the power of incumbency is incredibly powerful. But the story is that RFK Jr. unexpectedly did reach, I think, a peak at around 20 percent of the voter share against Joe Biden, and that compared with majorities of Democrats, major, overwhelming majorities of Americans, but a majority of Democrats preferring that Joe Biden not be the nominee in polls, and majorities also now with more recent polls showing that there are concerns about his age and mental fitness, there, it does seem to be the case that there would be a significant opening for someone like RFK Jr. or any number of other candidates if the process weren't so, as some people put it, rigged. There was a clip going around from The View mm -hmm. over the weekend in which the women were saying that there were no challengers to uh, Joe Biden, which, of course, is not true. Both RFK Jr. and Marion Williamson have long announced their presidential campaigns. And there are also shades of yesteryear with the Bernie 2016 um, contest being relived by folks who point out things like how Bernie won what was it every county in West Virginia, but only got one more delegate out of West Virginia because of the super delegate uh, kerfuffle that was so animating to folks as they made decisions about whether or not it was viable to ever run as a non-establishment candidate within the Democratic Party. So I wondered if you could paint a picture of this that contrasts perhaps with how mm -hmm. the Republicans are handling their primary contest. Obviously, they don't have an incumbent, but Donald Trump, in some ways, having been president before, is a constructive incumbent. What do you say to folks who say Republicans in this context seem to have a much better grasp on what it means to have a Democratic primary than the Democratic Party? Well, I don't want to defend either party, but the Donald Trump is not president right now. I think, you know, Jeffrey Clark and, and John Eastman might, might think he should be, but he, he's not. And they have just handled this in a different way. And this is the thing. The legacy of 2016, I think, for both parties is that. People have a, a view of these apparatus, uh, the app apparatus that run the that, that run the nomination process, but not the voting in the states, uh, the DNC, the RNC. You, uh, they view them as establishment uh, battleships that are not going to that are prevent anyone else from getting the nomination. In twenty six, sorry, twenty twenty with Trump, that actually happened. There were states like South Carolina that just canceled the primaries and said, "Okay, our delegates went to Trump." even though Trump had three uh, opponents. And this time, they are, I think, awkwardly handling this as, yes, he's the front runner, but he's not the nominee yet. Yeah, so among other things, they can't f fund his legal bills the way they did when he was he was president. Uh, so not defending the party, they're just the, the rules they have. When it comes to the Democratic race, it's uh, it's actually less competitive than, than the Republican race right now, despite the polling which you pointed to, which is unanimous, that most Democrats have a problem with President Biden's age and they would love an alternative. They're not going to Kennedy. I mean, we're, we're talking on September 11th. Uh, at this point in 2015, when Bernie was challenging Hillary and Martin O'Malley was running, et cetera, uh, he, the national average, it was a 23-point lead for Clinton uh, in real, real clear politics, which has everything up. And it's, it's about a 50-point lead for, for Biden right now, despite all his weaknesses. Uh, so the party is just uh, getting away, I would say, with just not opening the primary process up and saying we want a challenger. And there is that question. You asked it. What would happen? What would happen if Biden something something occurs? It's always odd to speculate about, but something that occurs that makes people say we're not sure we can nominate this guy again. Uh, there's a disaster. We, we have time for another nominee. How do we open this primary up? I think the DNC's role would just be having another vote, and say, it would be a mess, frankly, because Joe Biden still controls the party. But they would need to vote on, okay, what's our primary schedule? Uh, they, they don't have as much power as people think they do. They do have enough power to say, if you're running against the, the incumbent president, you're polling at 10%, we're going to ignore you. David, I'm curious if you've done reporting from the ground on how people in New Hampshire 
and Iowa are feeling about what seems to be a much more overt uh, sort of meddling with the outcome of a Democratic primary, uh, trying to penalize people who would run, the, the, the non-Biden candidates that are going to run in, for example, New Hampshire, despite the DNC changing the order of the primary states and Joe Biden choosing not to run in New Hampshire himself. One, I do think that most people don't know that Marianne Williamson and RFK Jr. are running. And two, also don't know right. about this kind of rigging by the, the DNC, if you will. But the people in New Hampshire most certainly do. So how are they responding to being deprioritized in this way by the Democratic Party? Well, they're not happy about it. Now, different reactions. In, in Iowa, uh, the party there really has lost everything except a state auto race in the last four years. Uh, so they, uh, they, what they miss about the primary is the resources that come in to help them win every election. And that's not happening in the general this time, even with, with Joe Biden, because he's just not popular in Iowa. He, he, he tried a little bit in 2020. He lost by the same margin as Hillary. They're being ignored. New Hampshire is different because it's a competitive state with a very strong Democratic Party. And they're being, I'd say, genteel about it. <laughs> they're not they're not really hmm. trying to muscle muscle uh, muscle Biden into make a decision. But they're Iowa is a party run caucus. So if the state, if the, if the national party says we're ignoring that, then they could, they're probably they're going to hold a caucus. Joe Biden won't be the, the on the ballot, but probably like has happened in the past, people will vote for undeclared or, or write in Joe Biden. In New Hampshire, it's the state that controls the primary. The state is going to have a primary. So that's what Democrats are bracing for is, OK, you're going to have a nominee if, if Biden is the nominee who made our primary irrelevant and punished uh, the, our, our opponents for the the for even competing for getting any delegates at all. One thing I'd say about the superdelegates is the, the rules changes after Bernie ran are that their superdelegates still exist. Um, they're people who have permanent roles at the convention, but they don't get to vote until the, the process is over. And that's what they kind of come in at the end and say, OK, this is what happened with Biden in 2020. OK, Biden's the nominee. There's 700 of us. We're all voting for him at the convention. So the, the, the Biden total now is 700 new superdelegates. They're not endorsing right now. They're actually not. Even though every, everyone in the party has endorsed him, you're not seeing like the AP count of how many delegates that Biden has, because they don't have that vote yet. But that's what Kennedy is talking about. Uh, if, if Were he to upset Biden and win 51 percent of the pledged delegates at the, at, in these in these primaries, then the, the superdelegates probably would come in and prevent him from nominating. He's just not there yet. I mean, he's, he's saying this as somebody who's been in the race uh, for five months. He's got uh, about, about a little bit less time than that to New Hampshire and Iowa, and he's polling they're well enough to get like two or three delegates. Uh, so that, that he's as the as the messenger for yeah. the rule change. It's it's not something that affects him yet, but that's how it works. Do we have any idea? Do you have any reason to think that you know if he's treated in a way he perceives to be unfair, there is a potential for him to go um, independent, third party, mount a bit outside the Democratic Party. He said so far he's a Democrat and he's running as a Democrat in the Democratic process. However, we can't help but notice that he draws a lot of support from some from conservatives and Republicans, also from uh, libertarians, as far as I can tell. He was at um, the libertarian event uh, that I attend uh, almost every year, Freedom Fest this year. Um, do you have any reason to think he is eyeing a bid um, under different uh, different owner, ownership, leadership, management. Yeah, he said he won't. And this is really what the Democrats have to wor have to worry about. It's just how do you treat RFK so that, frankly, he might behave like Tulsi Gabbard, where Gabbard runs for president in 2019, 2020. She loses, but she gets behind Biden and she doesn't try to support a third party candidate or run herself. 
Uh, that's kind of where they they went Kennedy to be. He he said that he wouldn't. Uh, the, the the question among some Democrats, they're not really having this conversation that often, but do voters, 100% voters knew who, know who RFK Jr. is? Not really. We've seen polling says some of them think he's somebody else, think he's a different Kennedy. But he doesn't poll as badly as Joe Biden because of what you said. He polls really kind of awful with, with uh, Democratic primary voters. The most, these are people who just, you know, watch MSNBC, they show up to party meetings, they're going to vote. They, what they've seen of RFK Jr., they think he is a right-wing plant. That's them, not me. Um, Democrats and independents, sorry, Republicans and independents have a much warmer view of him. And what Democrats are cynical about right now is they think, okay, how many of those Republicans who say, I love RFK Jr., just love that he's out there causing trouble for Barack, for, for the president? I, I think it's, it's, it's more tangled than that. There are a lot of Democrats. If you push, push these people in the party and say, yes, but wouldn't somebody who is not 80 years old and has some of Biden's uh, weaknesses be a better candidate, they do say yes. They did, that, that's the, the, the twilight zone that RFK Jr. is in, is that he polls far better with, with Republicans and independents than Joe Biden does. And Democrats who control their process have no interest in voting for him. Hmm. Uh, the party elite uh, do not like him. And the voters, the more they hear about him, they say, no, nah, because I mean, being, va- being vaccinated is almost a uh, price of entry for being a Democratic primary voter in 2024, right? Look at the hmm. rates. Most Democrats are vaccinated. Most Democrats love the vaccine. Most Democrats support the war in Ukraine. Because Kennedy, more than Williamson, is just running on issues where Republicans agree with him more than Biden. Were he the nominee? Would it disrupt things? I think it would. He's just not, he's just maybe 30 points away from getting there. Hmm. Yeah, it is worth noting that RFK Jr. has said repeatedly that he doesn't, he's not against COVID vaccines, but all his kids are, in fact, uh, vaccinated, his adult children, obviously. But we really appreciate you joining us uh, to give us some insight as to what's been going on in the campaign trail. Thank you, Dave. Thank you so much. Lions and tigers and aliens? Oh, my. <laughs> the Pentagon's UFO office, the all-domain anomaly resolution office, has released its website, which may contain an image of, quote, alien technology in a metallic ball, according to Hill opinion contributor Mark von Rennenkampf. Is the office sending cryptic alien messages? Joining us now to tell us more is Mark von Rennenkampf. Welcome back. Hey, guys. Thanks so much for having me back on. All right, Mark, let's throw this image back up. Tell us what we're supposed to be seeing here. What, what do folks think that they're seeing and where does this image come from? So um, I, there's a little backstory and some context here that I'm going to give you guys first. And the first is that uh, Congress is taking UFOs extremely seriously and has set up a 30-person office within the Department of Defense to study UFOs. And the director of that office recently came out and said, I'm quoting, we are seeing metallic orbs all around the world executing very interesting apparent maneuvers. So guys, do, do you, I can't think of any kind of metallic sphere or orb that can do any kind of maneuvers, let alone do them around the world. I, that's, let's start there. That's a fascinating comment from the director of the government's UFO office. Now, if you, if you look back through history, we can go back to World War II and see that pilots were reporting silvery balls, silver spheres, and they were completely mystified. At night, they became red, glowing, orange, fiery balls that were called Foo Fighters. So this phenomenon has been with us for quite a while. You're seeing that in the B-roll there, exactly. Um, and then if you go through government documents, you see that consistently in the late 40s and into the early 1950s before 
UFOs became a, a really a debunking exercise for the government. The most commonly reported characteristics were metallic spheres and elliptical disc-shaped objects. So that's a long way of setting up this little Easter egg that seems to be tucked into a very important new document that is sitting on the government's website. And here we're looking at the most commonly reported characteristics. This is per the US government. And again, we're looking at white, silver, sometimes they're translucent uh, spheres that uh, if, by re if you're reading this, one way to read this is that they are moving at twice the speed of sound or stationary. And this matches uh, re uh, reports by naval aviators that they were seeing metallic or translucent spheres hovering stationary or motion motionless above the ground. Um, so this all comes back to that little Easter egg that's tucked away into this report. It's it's a stock image and it's the title is alien technology in a metallic ball. What do you what do you make of that? Given all that context, I think it's fascinating, but I'd love to hear what you guys think. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, I just, I'm really just trying to parse what it is. Can we, can we throw it up one more time? Because the, the text that is accompanying it suggests that. And these are four stitched together images. So yeah, exactly. So each, each That's of right. these That's right. quarters was found somewhere on the website. And when you put them together, you can see a congruous image, which is evident yes. within the four things. So one quiet. way to take this is that the director of the office is trying to send a message. Um, oh. You can take that however you will, or it could be some intern playing a prank. I, I given the, the totality of the context, and I, I've poured over old government documents, and it is staggering to see how many references there are to metallic spheres, orbs, highly anomalous stuff. So I, I'm just putting this into kind of into a narrative and, and uh, applying a little bit of an analytic framework to say, hey, I think there might be a little more to this. I mean, the image in the sphere looks, it almost looks like a building to me, seen from down below. Oh, I thought That's it was what like I saw. cubicle. I thought it looked like the reflection of the interior of an office with cubicles. Mm. That's what I was trying to appear at. Can we, I'm sorry, can we see it one more time? I mean, what do you make of what's being reflected in the sphere? Does it see, seem I, pedestrian I'm looking at a human? building from outside. Like, I see you seeing I'm, I'm that. I'm not going to. Guys, I'm not going to read into that too much. I'm going to read into the title, which is "Alien Technology in yeah. a Metallic Ball." I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to leave it at that. Yeah. This is just a stock image, right? This is just an Adobe. Somebody, somebody went online and probably Googled stock images that may. I have no idea how it got in mm -hmm. there, but um, it, again, the title is what I'm focusing on. Well, so, 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 should we make the conclusion that right, someone is is um, messing with? Good people like you who are, you know, trying to um, approach this subject with some degree of, you know, evidence-based rationality is to prove that, you know, the UFO interested people are all kooks who will jump at any, it will make, you know, wild conclusions out of any anything we do. That look, that's a fair read, Robbie. Let me let me. I'll throw another uh, little Easter egg out at you guys. Um, and apparently, this office loves to drop Easter eggs. If you, I don't know if we have it um, in B-roll, but the the actual logo of the Aero office, the A A R O office, it's the UFO office. Guess what? The O is a big, fat, round, silver sphere. And in the, in the uh, below it, there is a little tic-tac-shaped object, which is reminiscent of the famous two thousand and four. Yes. Tic Tac incident with Commander Fravor and, and three other uh, naval aviators. So there's there are a lot of little Easter eggs that are already baked into this this enterprise that is the the new UFO office. So um, look, I, I'm going to throw this out there. People can make their own judgments, but I, I find it interesting, and I'm going to draw attention to it at, at, a, at the very very least. What about this argument that this 
interest in UFOs is convenient for a government that might want to get support for growing its military budget or alternatively provide distractions for less um, appealing news stories that it might be involved in, and that including Easter eggs like this in its website is a way for it to get what it wants, get public attention, um, gin up an audience that it knows is looking for these kinds of things, uh, provide exactly that distraction tool. And then a government that was genuinely trying to hide information from the public wouldn't be trying to wink, wink, nod, nod to the existence of alien technology or life. Well, so let, let's, I'm going to zoom out. I, I provide a lot of context for the, the metallic ball image, but um, if we zoom out even further, I'm sure you guys are aware of um, the Senate Majority Leader's legislation that that is passed the Senate that is working its way through Congress and in, is now being uh, or will be in conference with with the House. And um, that legislation is literally called the UAP Disclosure Act of 2023, and it requires that private contractors who have UFO material to turn that over to the U.S. government. That includes what they call biological evidence of non-human intelligence, alien bodies. And this is in federal legislation, in, 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 in congressional legislation. And it's stunning. What, what if, you, if the American people actually read what's in this, it, it defines non-human intelligence and mentions that term two dozen times, 24 times. So there's something going on here um, between the executive, which was what we're seeing here, right? And, and the video of this metallic orb uh, over the Middle East and uh, what's happening somewhat perhaps in parallel um, on the legislative side in Congress. So, so there's something afoot. Um, you know, I, if the Pentagon wanted to squeeze more money out of this, I'm sure there are other ways to do it. They would be much more, they would be sounding alarm bells. They would be pointing fingers. Hey, look, this is China or Russia. They're not, they're being fairly cagey about this. So I, I think there are many different ways or probably better ways to get to squeeze money out of Congress for, for the DOD budget. Hmm. Merrick von Renenkamp, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me, guys. On this day, 22 years ago, over 3,000 Americans were killed in the 9-11 attacks on the United States. Over two decades later, Americans are still awaiting answers about what happened that day, as well as what occurred leading up to the attacks and after. The organization 9-11 Justice is a grassroots movement made up of 9-11 survivors, first responders, family members of those who lost loved ones, and volunteers, Manhattan residents working to attain justice and accountability from those who were behind the attacks. Now, on its website, 9-11 Justice has posted documents, quote, proving that the FBI has withheld critical information from 9-11 families and also the American people. Now, here to discuss his experience is president of 9-11 Justice, Brett Eagleson. Welcome, Brett. Thank you for having me. And we know that you lost your father on 9-11. We're very sorry for your loss and for everyone else who lost loved ones on that day. Um, tell us more about what you and your organization are fighting for to understand what, what is the mission. Sure. Well, on this somber day, as we mark the 22nd year anniversary of 9-11, I do have some hopeful news, what looks appears to be hopeful news to share with, with everyone. Um, you know, uh, last night we just got word that Senator Blumenthal from Connecticut, my state senator, my own senator, along with Senator Ron Johnson from Wisconsin, 
sent a, a very strong worded demanding letter to uh, Merrick Garland, you know, the, the DOJ and Christopher Ray, the head of the FBI, demanding more disclosure, um, demanding more information and demanding more documents. So um, if we as we look back on 22 years, the fact that we're still fighting for justice and that we still need information, we still need answers is devastating to us. However, there is a bit there is a glimmer of hope. Right. And if Senator Johnson, who is on the right side of the political spectrum and Senator Blumenthal is on the on the left side of the political spectrum, if those two can can come together to agree on something, you know that this is the right cause. This is the right push. And this is something that America can join in on. Everybody agrees that the 9-11 family members deserve the truth. We deserve closure and we deserve accountability. Um, this letter demands that the FBI and the DOJ adhere to the presidential executive order that President Biden did in 2021. Can you speak to the nature of the disclosures that you hope to happen? Uh, you make reference in a recent op-ed to uh, documents that have not been disclosed and point to evidence that there are gaps in the disclosures that the families and the American people more broadly haven't had access to. What are you expecting to find or hoping to find in these disclosures? Sure. So one specific example that I can talk about, I think this is one of the most stark examples, is that um, uh, the lawyers for the Guantanamo Five, so the defense counsel for the terrorists themselves, have received information from the United States government, from United States intelligence agencies. Um, that information uh, was denied to the 9-11 families. So you have the group of terrorist lawyers in Guantanamo Bay receiving communications, information, and help from the U.S. government, the same very documents that our lawyers have fought 22 years for, the same documents that our government has labeled state secrets, or they've labeled them um, too sensitive for the, for the American people to see. Uh, the Guantanamo Defense Council has that information. There is um, information, for example, uh, um, that is referred to in other reports that we have. So as part of the presidential executive order, President Biden in 2021 enacted an EO calling upon uh, the FBI, DOJ, CIA, NSC to declassify to the greatest extent possible documents. We've gotten a sliver of those documents, and in those documents, there is um, a report that refers to call details between the hijackers, the hijackers' handlers, and the Saudi embassy in Washington, D.C. When we've asked for the FBI's underlying analysis of those call details, those call records, we've been denied that. There is a lease that exists between the hijackers with Omar el-Bayoumi, who's guaranteeing the lease. Omar el-Bayoumi the FBI says, was a Saudi intelligence operative. When we asked for that lease, we were told that lease doesn't exist. So they give us just enough, but they don't give us enough to actually win in a court of law. They don't give us enough to actually explain and tell the entire story. So, so we're standing here today, we're taking a stance, and we're, we're pressing our government to finally tell the story. We don't care who it embarrasses. We don't care if it upsets Saudi Arabia. We don't care if it upsets our own government. But the truth needs to come out. So you're saying that you're you're looking for information that would support your lawsuit against the government of Saudi Arabia and that you have knowledge that information has been given that might help you in your case to the defendants in Guant Guantanamo Bay. Is that right? 
Yeah, look, I've been talking to the def- I've been talking to the lawyers for for the defense counsel in Guantanamo Bay. In Guantanamo Bay, they told us if you guys had this information, it would shake you to the core. It would change the entire narrative of 9/11. Uh, they they are shocked what they have have been given. Um, you know, it probably points to our supposition is that it points to the fact that the United States intelligence agencies knew a lot more prior to 9/11 that they ever let on to uh, the American public. It points directly at the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia supporting the Saudi intelligence apparatus, supporting these hijackers. Um, our FBI former officials have come forward. They've told us that the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia is 100% culpable for these attacks. Um, uh, so we're calling for truth. Listen, these documents would absolutely help us in our lawsuit. Um, um, but that's not the only reason that they should come out. They should come out because in 22 years later, as we're teaching this in our schools, as I'm teaching my three-year-old daughter and my one-year-old son, as we're teaching our kids and our children about 9-11, we need to get the record right. We need to set the story right. And the story is not that 19 hijackers with no knowledge of English, no money, no knowledge of how to fly a plane. They had no idea about Western culture. We're able somehow to band together and pull off the most devastating and consequential attack in this country's history with no help from anybody. They actually did have help. And that help came in the form of the Saudi government through the Saudis' own embassies and its support network that it had established in this country prior to 9-11. That is where all the roads point to. That is where all the evidence we have seen lately directly points the finger back at the kingdom of Saudi Arabia for its role that it played. So it's important that we get it right. We're writing history as we speak today. We need to get it right. Every American deserves the truth. This is one thing that Democrats and Republicans alike can agree on. Right. Well, and it's important, as you alluded to a minute ago, for if there was an intelligence failing uh, from you know U.S. Um, U.S. intelligence officers to address that for the safety of the country to make sure it wouldn't occur again. Uh, my, my concern and my worry is, you know, this issue, as with so many things we discuss frequently on this show, uh, with respect to um, what the government knows about UAPs, what the government knows about the origins of COVID, if it's if it is at all embarrassing to the intelligence officials, how can we ever? And they have tremendous power to disguise things from us or to keep things hidden, even even in cases where Biden ha- and all of Congress have you know have signed agreements to to unilaterally uh, release information that the intelligence officials have on these subjects. You know, they, we still get these highly redacted documents or documents that are just summaries of what the intelligence community purports to know. Um, you know, how can we ever? Get get that information if it looks if it reflects poorly on the people who are responsible for doling out the information eventually. Yeah, that's a really important point to make. And we we all we can do is we can continue talking, we can continue pushing, we can continue writing op eds and and calling on calling on members of Congress. We can have hearings. Um, we can push for more information. Look, as time goes on, more and more individuals are coming forward. They don't want to die knowing what they know. Uh, about what happened on 9-11, about what happened up to that day. Former FBI officials have come forward helping us. Foreign governments, the United Kingdom, Scotland Yard, had a series of documents that they seized in a raid of El Bayoumi's apartment. When we couldn't get answers from our own government, the British government stepped in and gave our lawyers a trove of documents. One of those documents was this guy, El Bayoumi, who had an apartment. He had a flat in, in Birmingham, England. He had a diagram uh, uh, it was a yellow notebook. It was a yellow notepad. There was a plane drawn on that notepad. And then next to it was an algorithm. And, and um, former pilots have said 
Um, yeah, that, that is an algorithm of, at, at what height that plane would need to be in order to hit a target on the horizon line. So the, this is information that if Americans by and large knew, they would be shocked. They would be horrified to know the extent that the Saudi government played uh, in these 9-11 attacks. But, but as we continue to push, we are having success. Um, so I applaud you guys for having us on this show to allow us to tell our point. As more and more people become frustrated, the dam is starting to break. Um, we are starting to slowly get information out, and, and we welcome that bipartisan letter, that very powerful letter last night to uh, Attorney General Merrick Garland and FBI Director Christopher Wray from, from, a, from a very strong Senate subcommittee. Yeah, it seems very important to keep this issue um, bipartisan so that it can't be, you know, politically captured. Uh, everyone, all Americans have an interest in disclosure in so many things, and particularly this. Uh, Brett, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Last week, I had the real pleasure of sitting down with Crystal Ball and Kyle Kalinske to discuss whether Americans really do need to just suck it up and vote for Joe Biden. Kalinske accused critics of the president of having Biden derangement syndrome. Let's watch. I, I didn't expect him to do any of it, and he did it. And this is something that but if I said early on, Biden's going to do nothing on student loan debt, everybody on the left would have been like, you're right, he's going to do nothing. Now he does five, six different things on it. And it's like people go, no, 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 doesn't count, doesn't count. I'm not saying what he's doing is perfect. Obviously, the best thing to do is to wipe it all out through executive order. And he has the authority to do that. That'd be the best thing to do. He didn't do that. But can we at least acknowledge the facts of what went down? And I see this rugged insistence. Honestly, it's like Biden derangement syndrome among some people on the left. And it's like Democrat derangement syndrome among some people on the left. The fact that... We can't all agree very quickly that, well, obviously, Democrats are not 10 times better than Republicans. They're 100 times better than Republicans. And even if you are somebody who's a purist and you're on the left, you can acknowledge a W in the instances you get it while still pushing for more. I mean, a perfect example is what's happening in Minnesota right now. Minnesota has a one-seat Democrat majority. We got universal free school meals, legal weed, carbon-free electricity by 2040, tax rebates for the working class up to $1,300 if you make under $150,000 a year, 12 weeks paid family leave, 12 weeks paid sick leave. They banned conversion therapy. They did red flag laws for guns. They did universal background checks for guns. They did automatic voter registration, public free college if you make under 80K, a ban on PFAs, which is the forever chemicals, $2.2 billion increase in K-12 school funding, sectoral bargaining, bargaining for nursing home workers. These things are all not little wins. They are huge wins. And I still see this insistence like we're back in 2016 or something where people are like, nope, Democrats and Republicans are either equally bad or actually jujitsu move, Republicans are the lesser evil. And I think it's idiotic. It's doomerist. It's nihilist. It's people who are refusing to acknowledge reality. And they'd rather narrative hump all day talking about Democrats are so bad. Democrats are so bad. Democrats are so bad. But oh, yeah, I'm a leftist. And I, I promise that I did <laughs> respond. People really like to circulate that clip in particular on the Internet because I took a deep breath. Because in my subjective view, that all that he said was non-responsive to the point that I was trying to make before he started going on that I, I, we, Well, is that we have you next responding, I think? Oh, I'm not, I'm not sure what clips have been chosen, <laughs> but we can, we can keep rolling the clip. Here's a little bit more of the debate. If it comes down to World War III versus that litany of um, achievements that you just articulated, there were people that, with the hindsight of living in the nuclear holocaust, would say, well, I guess that Trump actually was a better president. But I don't, I don't Who's more likely to happened? get us World War III, though? I, I definitely I think it's Trump. I definitely think it's Trump more likely to get us World War III. I don't want to know what people think. You disagree I want to know, know what you think. I, Do you I, think I, that I, that's accurate? 
because to I, me, I look be. at the record. We don't, we don't know until history happens what history is going to do. I wouldn't have expected that under Biden, we would have gotten in the middle of this war with Ukraine and Russia. I would not. That wasn't on my bingo card either. Yeah, but we know that Trump was actually more hawkish towards Russia than He built like, up on NATO's border. Obama he put was, troops on NATO's border. We know what he did with Iran. We know he said he was going to get out of Afghanistan. Biden actually did it. So we can we can evaluate these two claims. This, this, so we shouldn't believe anything that Donald a, Trump says about Ukraine. A, a toxic... This is literally just a vote blue, no matter who converse, a lesser two. No, it's a let's discuss the facts and how you weigh them conversation. Here, 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 how about this? Biden can be 10 times better than Trump. Let's concede that for the sake of argument. I'm not voting for him. So what was, in my view, very frustrating? And then again, I, I'm so happy that we had this conversation because I do think that it unpacked a lot of the core of the division in the left right now, which is that there are people who believe that Trump presents an existential harm and that therefore, no matter what Biden does, and people will, will push back and say, well, Biden has done great, so it's not about lowering the bar for Biden. But if you watch the first five minutes of the conversation, the stakes became very clear. If you believe that Donald Trump is an existential threat, then singing Biden's accomplishments is irrelevant. And that's what I was trying to get across to Kyla. In that instance, it's like, it, it's not that it, it's not that anybody is trying to minimize that Biden, of course, has done good things. And as I say elsewhere in the clip, I can also say Obama did good things. Everyone does something good. Nixon made Earth Day. Like everyone does something good. And I'm not saying that to diminish anything. Right. But that's not what is motivating people's decisions at the polls. What the the, the way the conversation is framed is that because of Trump presenting an existential threat, not because Biden is good, but because Trump presents an existential threat, you have to vote for the Democrat. And I asked them at the beginning, I said, let's concede, like when I say let's concede that Biden is better, I, I mean it for the sake of argument, Biden is better. I, fine, Biden is better. 20 times, a thousand times. When I, when I said he's 10 times better, Kyle later in the conversation goes, okay, but he's a thousand times better. All right, when does it end? <laughs> let's go, he's a million times better. Okay, fine. Does that mean then what, it, that you're, you're willing to withhold your vote for a Democratic candidate the next cycle when it's not Trump? If it were Ron DeSantis, would you say that it's, oh, now we can start having a conversation about withholding our vote? No. Yeah. If it was Did you bring that up? Because yes. that would, it, it, that would yes, instantly course. provoke the same reaction. In fact, all the people saying, not all of the, I don't know if Crystal and Kyle would say that. I don't know them that well. I don't watch them very often. Would They, they would say that... Um, they're already doing, like, mainstream Democratic people, at least, are already doing that Ron DeSantis is worse than Trump. Yes, and You've I heard that actually, argument. I think that's actually true because I think he's more effective and Trump got in his own way sometimes. Remember when he mm -hmm. created a constitutional, an unconstitutional hook right. to, to, to strike down his Muslim ban because he just said out loud, right. we're banning them because they're Muslim. But, but the point <laughs> is that it contradicts the idea that this is a once-off, you just have to support right. the Democrat because of Trump. Of course right. it's not going to be like so that. So what, what I had hoped and what I hope the three of us are able to have a conversation about going forward, because I hope this is just the beginning of something, is what does the off-ramp look like? If you don't believe in vote boom men are who. And I, and I should say that this conversation was sparked. I reached out to Crystal to discuss this because for the previous week, there had been a viral clip going around of Crystal from Breaking Points in which she had articulated basically the argument that she's making in this debate. But people pointed out that it seemed to contrast with the position that she had taken earlier, a year or so ago in radars or uh, in the version of um, their radars right. over on Breaking Points. Uh, and people were trying to figure out what had changed. And, you know, I'm still a little bit unclear on that personally. And I just want to be really clear. I at no point disagree 
with the value of the NLRB appointments and what they really do bring to uh, labor's ability to agitate for change in the United States of America, I strongly believe that the path to the kind of more uh, socialist future that I advocate for, one where workers' rights are primary over profits, is going to come through labor power. I don't. I didn't disagree with a single thing that Crystal said. I think the difference of opinion has to be about what our priorities are. And my personal priority is ending the corporate duopoly. And the only way to do so, per Kyle's own statements in the debate, is to advocate for third, third parties and also ranked choice voting. And a point that I made, I was thinking of you, Robbie, is that the Libertarian Party has been perhaps the most effective advocate for ranked choice voting in the United States, because unlike the Green Party, which has a similar interest as the Libertarian Party, it's much better funded. It's because it takes corporate money and the Green Party doesn't, <laughs> but regardless, it is much better funded. So to me, there is a real tangible benefit to voting for a third party candidate so they can get 5% of the vote in federal matching funds and to, can start to limit that yeah. effort to getting ranked choice voting and break the duopoly. If, uh, if Viewers aren't aware, longtime viewers I'm sure are aware. Crystal Ball was the former host of this show. Kyle Kalinske is her husband. They're recently married. You were at the wedding, yes, I believe. Yes, I was. You're friendly with them. Yes. And, and Crystal, I think, was known for, including in her role as the host of the show during the previous Bernie campaign, as a major supporter and booster of Bernie Sanders, not someone I would have necessarily expected to be hearing from in a very, you know, we, we really do got to rally behind Biden. Um, obviously, the conversation that you and I have about this is different because I, I do actually ob object to and disagree with most of the things that Kyle uh, was listing as achievements because I disagree with those policies. Um, that's probably not even worth getting into. But I do take issue. I don't know how much, to what extent you took issue with the idea that Trump um, represents some unique threat of World War III. I, look, I, Trump, I wish Trump was, was my, yes, I think we zoomed in on it. I, I think Trump did not follow through on the uh, the less interventionist foreign policy he articulated to nearly the extent uh, I would have wanted him to. Um, that said, I mean, so you, look, the things he's saying about Ukraine now are much saner than yeah. the things the Biden administration is doing about it. Yeah. Um, you, you know, look, you want to I, I, yeah. I argue that he's like his clumsy finger is by some nuclear holocaust button. I don't, I don't know how much that holds water when Biden is is is, you know, sending cluster bombs to a war zone that he right. says is going to go on forever. I yeah. I, I, I kind of object, having thought about this more over the weekend, I really do object to the, I think it's it's the wrong question, and I think it's kind of a, I'm not saying anybody is attempt, as trying to be manipulative, right. but it is a strategically very manipulative question. Um, who is worse, Biden or Trump? Who is more likely to cause nuclear war? Yeah. If, if I presented you with a pile of poop and a pile of mama and said, which one of these do you want for dinner, do you really want to enter into an esoteric conversation about which is the less appetizing meal? The whole point is that we should be united around the common goal of getting rid of these two bad options, of getting rid of the corporate duopoly. And when you ask those kinds of questions, it has the effect of breaking up what should be a coalition that's charged principally with getting those corporate bodies out of power. And I saw a similar kind of issue emerge over the weekend or into last week um, because very popular uh, comedian podcast host Jamie Dore interviewed Cornell West, someone who's been very sympathetic of a, a Green Party voter, things like that. And they ended up getting into a tussle about whether or not um, kind of COVID ma mandates versus 
um, uh, fighting racism and white supremacy is the most important thing. And again, that feels like a trap. Many people believe that COVID mandates are very important and, and not having authoritarian mandates are very important, and also think that racism is bad and important. If you're in the business of going around trying to make voters have the exact same, not just broad priorities, but rank them in the exact order that you rank them in, you are doing the work of busting up any coalition that could possibly be in power. It's op work. Intentionally or unintentionally, that is op work. That is like CIA applauding from the sidelines level work. Mm -hmm. If you can agree that these are your priorities, big ticket items, being anti-authoritarianism, being anti-white supremacy, being anti-mandate, being anti-any of the tools that the, the, that the establishment has been used to break up working class coalitions since, the, since time immemorial, then you need to say, we're all going to fight on all of those things together. Maybe you are a child and you care about child care a little bit more than you care about health care. Maybe you have a sick parent, so you care about health care a little bit more than the military. Maybe you have a, a brother serving or or sister serving, so you care about the military-industrial complex more than you care about housing rights. But the whole point is that you should be trying to get people under a big tent, not nitpicking about which thing is worse, and then busting up the coalition on that basis. And I really do think, you know, there are many people who are going to say Brianna is indifferent to Donald Trump because of the arguments that I was making on the show. A lot of people were making that argument on the internet. The internet doesn't matter. What matters is that we're able to see through rhetorical strategies that have the effect of making us forget that we are aligned as a left community on getting out the corporate duopoly. And the only question we should be asking ourselves and debating on is what is the strategy that is most likely effective, not at beating Trump, that is not my personal priority, but at beating the entire system itself. All right, one last question for yeah. you. So you took a day off from <laughs> this show, from our enjoyable, always enjoyable conversations to go do that. Yeah, so no, no, that's not true. I took the day off. No, I know. I'm just, I'm just saying, it seems like it wasn't very relaxing. Sometimes like, you know, because we uh, some, some days are more argumentative than others. We've had a lot of argumentative days lately. No, <laughs> like, yeah, uh, no. Your, your, your fate in life, you, you <laughs> crossed some gypsy woman and they said, you will, you will have an unpleasant encounter with a very blonde man every day for the rest of your life. That does, that does, doesn't do what it is. No, I, to be, for the record, I took Wednesday off to do Russell Brand yes. because he's in England. He's, they're strict about the for time sure. that they record and they do it live. And hopefully the idea is he's planning to come on our show too. So it benefits the hill that I, I went I ahead totally and I totally understand. And because I had the day off, I went ahead and scheduled a bunch of stuff so that I wouldn't just be wasting the time. All right. Well, everybody should check out the rest of that very spicy oh, exchange. And, and to be clear, an hour of it is free, available both on Kyle's channel, my channel, and all over the internet. On, on uh, Bad Faith Podcast is the name of my show. Because you can also subscribe at patreon.com slash badfaithpodcast for the last 45 minutes, which I think cooler heads prevail and we do do less talking past each other, so I do recommend people go and listen to the whole thing. More Rising right after this. Hollywood couple Ashton Kutcher and Mila Kunis are facing backlash for writing character letters in support of Danny Masterson. The, the late, uh, that 70s show actor has been found guilty of raping two women in the early 2000s and is now sentenced to 30 years to life in prison. 
In 2020, Masterson was charged with three counts of rape by force or fear. There was no verdict reached on the third count of rape due to a hung jury. According to Huffington Post reporter Yashar Ali, the letters from Kutcher and Kunis uh, contained a significant amount of Scientological phrasing and were intended to undermine the victims who were allegedly drugged by Masterson. We are aware of the pain that has been caused by the character letters that we wrote on behalf of Danny Masterson. We support victims. We have done this historically through our work and will continue to do so in the future. A couple months ago, Danny's family reached out to us and they asked us to write character letters to represent the person that we knew for 25 years so that the judge could take that into full consideration relative to the sentencing. The letters were not written to question the legitimacy of the judicial system or the validity of the jury's ruling. They were intended for the judge to read um, and not to undermine the testimony of the victims or re-traumatize them in any way. We would never want to do that. And we're sorry if that has taken place. Our heart goes out to every single person who's ever been a victim of sexual assault, sexual abuse, or rape. Masterson was reportedly raised in the Church of Scientology and has been part of the church throughout his life. So, a number of things going on here. So, obviously, Ashton Kutcher and Mila Kunis were both on That 70s Show with Danny Masterson, and they've received pushback for offering um, these, you know, letters of, of uh, character, character bill, which are an effort to persuade a judge to impose a more lenient sentence to take into other factors. Um, there was some discussion or claims made that he had you know, taken care of family members when their father was out of the picture, that sort of thing. Um, it didn't work. Uh, Masterson was sentenced to basically the very maximum he could have gotten, 30 years, for two separate um, charges of, of rape, of sexual assaults. Um, it, it is a, it's a very long sentence. Um, we were reflecting on that, which is not in any way uh, trying to uh, the obviously the accusation, which was he was convicted on, is extremely serious, and uh, I, I think everyone accepts that it's very serious. It is it is an awful lot of prison time. Yeah, we were just comparing it to. I, I just thought of R. Kelly to see what the like a standard mm -hmm. compare was. He got 20 years. You opined that maybe it wasn't because our uh, because R. Kelly settled. Er, pled out instead of going to trial, but it seems like he also yeah. went to trial. And in His that case, there people, was a lot more. And there, Yeah, there, I mean, there was the was underage, underage aspect of it and, yeah, child pornography aspect of it as well. Um, it does—his uh, Masterson's attorneys uh, argued for the two 15-year sentences to be served consecutively. Um, was not successful. Not sure if there's going to be additional appeals. You mean concurrently? Sorry, concurrently. Right. The defense wanted them served concurrently. Yeah, concurrently. Right. But there, the, the broader conversation that this has sparked is whether or not it's appropriate for someone to write character letters, which is a, a common thing that people do for folks that they know that have done yeah. wrongdoing. Is the issue here that these are famous people um, who got caught and are now offering this apology oh, because I, they were caught and there's a public interest in whether or not they did this, or is, would it not be an issue at all if they were just close friends of someone who did a bad Neighbor, thing, brother, who cousin. was asked by their family to, to make this like, gesture. Like, everyone deserves due process. Everyone deserves all due consideration for the length of their sentence. I, I Look, people can feel about this whatever way they want. They can think this is some kind of betrayal if they want to. I mean, for my part, I would not really begrudge someone for writing such a letter in such a situation even with full knowledge of 
how bad the conduct was in the conviction. Um, but that's just me. People can feel differently about it. Uh, there is a, there is a, so Ashton Kutcher and Mila Kunis are not part of the Church of Scientology, but um, there, there is some question about whether that, they might have some affiliation or they might be involved, um, given the, the language in the support letter that they wrote. Um, obviously, this, the, the Church of Scientology's behavior is very much part of this because Danny Masterson is a high-profile part of it. Um, the accusations uh, were made by uh, women, uh, some of them who were in the church at the time. There's obviously a lot of, you know, as people know from watching documentaries about it or reading about it, a lot of, you know, silencing going on in the realm of Scientology. One of the women who initially made the claims apparently flied it with Leah Remini, Another actress, you might know her from King of Queens, right, who, left who the church. very famously left the church and, unlike other people who left the church, has been very vocal <laughs> yeah. uh, despite all of the pushback that the church is able to leverage in doing so. So yeah, it's all mixed up with the Scientology stuff. But I just want to get back to the—I mean, the core argument that's made this gone viral on the Internet is about whether or not, one, they're genuinely sorry. People say— uh, Mila Kunis saying we support victims is obviously undermined by making this kind of statement. But is there is is there is there any gray area of I think that this person is guilty. I think that they should have to go to jail for their crimes. I think that the sentence, let's say hypothetically, is longer than is warranted, and therefore I'm going to write this character letter to help to bring it in line with what mm -hmm. fits the punishment. What punishment fits the crime? Is that? A problem is that inconsistent with supporting victims. If you know you're only supporting yeah. the victim if you want the person to go to jail for life, regardless of the nature of the underlying crime. That's one kind of conversation. And another is, you know, even if you think it was justified for someone close to the perpetrator of a crime who believes in their guilt and needs to be punished to write a letter of support like this, was it just simply a terrible? comms move on the part of two famous people to write such a letter knowing that it would be public? Or perhaps not knowing it was, but that it was going to be public, but they know now. And was it just really terrible advice they got from their media team? Well, to I mean, do maybe this? it is, but I mean, we're never going to like if people, especially if people who are mad about this, are on are on the left or coming from a progressive, which tends to be a lot of the you know believe victims, you know, be me too, be very upset about sexual assault, that kind of thing. Like, we're never going to end mass incarceration for. Um, if everyone gets like a life sentence for everything, um, if if there's no without any without allowing um, for f additional consideration to maybe lessen that sentence somewhat, if you're going to like shame that attempt, what, what, like what is the progressive criminal justice movie even well, movement even trying to accomplish? I think the criticism. I have no idea what seemed like everybody was criticizing it. I don't know what the valence of the criticism were because people on the right. Tend to just hate celebrities. Well, <laughs> they just don't like Hollywood years, look, people. I, I'm, not, I'm not like going soft on violent crimes. Thirty years seems like a, a long time to me for for murder, frankly. So I think it would be in other. Sorry to keep interrupting. I think in other. I think in like other country in progressive, more pr criminally minded progressive countries, it would be considered a log charge for I, murder. I think. I think what people are latching onto is the inconsistency and the hypocrisy. If you really think. The guy did a bad thing. It broke my heart that someone I know and love raped women and was convicted of raping multiple women. At the same time, I am uh, against the uh, mass incarceration. I think his sentence was longer than what is typically assigned to people in this position. And I do think that it was appropriate for me to write not, not a letter trying to get him out 
or saying that he wasn't guilty, but a letter which helped the judge sentencing make a more appropriate sentencing decision. But they didn't even like make that kind of a defense in their apology. They simply made these pat statements about how they support victims, which seems to be in contradiction with what we know of the nature of the letter that they wrote. So, I mean, maybe it's too much to ask of celebrities to be really wrestling with the t those tough, tougher kind of ethical questions, which I think there's a legitimate divide on. But what it felt like was just like, a couple of one thoughtless action piled onto another thoughtless action in the in the optics of that particular video where you and know the video looks horrible. It's, it's like a hostage looks, video. Yeah, yeah. Ashton Kutcher who if I were to, if I were I, I tweeted this like if I were to anticipate or if I were to guess who was the better actor of the two based on their records, I would have expected Mila Kunis maybe to give the better line read, but she Mila's seemed to be very much reading off a piece of paper, yeah. and his seemed much more natural. They do seem, they seem like hostage videos. It, it was, it was just the whole thing was a bad Well, idea. that's another point, like, stop making it worse. They probably should have just let this blow over without saying yeah. anything. The say, we're talking about it even more because they said something, yes. and what they said sounded totally insincere. Never give video. Like, a news story is yeah. only going to go so far yeah. if there's no video. If, if you believe it's a private matter, it. if look I, look, I can see the scenario playing out. I can see Masterson's mom, who's it's not at fault, or whoever, yeah. like his family members, saying, not only did you work together since you were children, Mila Kunis was a literal child on that 70s show, which is a whole other scandal about how she was made to kiss all of these adults on the show. She has this viral clip of her saying that the writers made her, she kissed every man on the set of the show when she was literally underage um, for much of the, that recording of that series. Um, but to say, you've known us for so long, I'm sure they're, they're intimate from a familiar perspective. Ashton and Masterson also went on to have another show that was short-lived because of these accusations that wrapped in 2017. And because of that, I just need people who knew him, and you yeah. know him, to write these character letters. Please, not for him, but for me. I'm the mom. Like, yeah, of I can, course. I, can I don't see think that. that's, yeah, I but don't if, think that's inappropriate but at if all. that's a private, if, if you decided to do that, yeah. and that, like, is about your private relationships, then just let it be. Let it be private. Don't respond to the public. Sure. You're, make, you're keeping it alive, and you're not even addressing the public's core concerns, which are also, I think, legitimate in the context of this video. Do you know what uh, additional That 70s Show co-star uh, Topher Grace said about all this? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Yeah, so he was trending over the weekend or because saying nothing. the story used to be that he was kind of a spoil sport or a sourpuss because he was known to not hang out with the rest of the staff, rest of the cast of that show. And now, as there are stories, there was a scandal involving Wil Wilmer Valderrama. There have been a number of There's scandals. There's a scandal involving Wilmer Valderrama? I don't want to. I don't want to get any details of it wrong, mm. so I don't want to go any farther than that. But now, in retrospect, it's looking like he was the smart one. <laughs> um, it was coming out with all of the out of all of this with his nose clean. So, well, the and the the other the last person in that show, Laura Preppen, she was in the Church of Scientology, but um, I believe left it. Um, uh, it's in, it says left in 2016 or cut ties with the church. So anyway, yeah, yeah, just interesting. It, it, I don't want to overstate this nature. It was nothing like what Masterson did. He wasn't accused of anything like that, but there was this oh, other Vildor, question v of Vandorama. dating younger women on oh. the line, that, that, that sort of a thing. So, okay. um, yeah, please do let us know what you think of this and how it should have been handled or just ignored perhaps, uh, by all of the actors, literal actors involved. Uh, stick around, we'll have more rising for you after this.
Elon Musk confirmed Thursday he blocked Internet access via his Starlink satellites last year, which were essential for Ukraine in its war with Russia, a move that CNN host Jake Tabber contended sabotaged a military operation. Speaking with Secretary of State Antony Blinken on State of the Union Sunday morning, Tabber asked if repercussions are warranted. Here's that exchange. Starlink has been a vital tool for the Ukrainians to be able to communicate with each other, and particularly uh, for the military uh, to communicate in their effort to defend all of Ukraine's territory. It remains so, and I would expect it to, to continue uh, to be critical to their efforts. So what we would uh, hope and expect is that that technology will remain fully available to the Ukrainians. It is vital to what they're doing. I don't know that you can't speak to it. You won't speak to it. Musk says he was reportedly afraid that Russia would retaliate with nuclear weapons. Musk says that's based on his private discussions he had with senior Russian officials. Are you concerned that Musk is apparently conducting his own diplomatic outreach to the Russian government? Really, n none of this concerns you? Jake, I can't speak to uh, conversations that may or may not have happened. I don't know. Um, I'm focused on the fact that the technology itself, Starlink, has been really important to the Ukrainians. Musk responded on X, writing, quote, there was an emergency request from government authorities to activate Starlink all the way to Sestopol, the obvious intent being to sink most of the Russian fleet at anchor. If I had agreed to the request, then SpaceX would be explicitly complicit in a major act of war and conflict escalation. Musk has previously said Starlink was not intended to be used in warfare. Yeah, so this, uh, I read the New York Times report on this, and even if it's written, so I don't, I don't think the New York Times is going to be, like, overly favorable to Elon. Sure. So, but even if we take it the way they wrote it, I'm, I'm not quite sure what the criticism is here. They didn't, the, the Ukraine wasn't promised Starlink and had it snapped off in the middle of a maneuver. I, I agree that would be pretty dirty and underhanded, mm -hmm. although, again, this is the service they're getting for free, mm -hmm. um, because Elon provided it. Um, he did not authorize a use of the satellite internet service system for a specific military maneuver based on his conversation, supposedly, mm -hmm. with a with the Russian government. Um, he was worried that was cause um, World War III. My question is not um, Jake Tapper's question there, which was, how dare how dare Elon talk to the Russian government? My question is, does the U.S. government have any similar fear that World War III might break out based on the actions of the Ukrainian government, which are supported and funded by the U.S.? That's what I'd like to know. I would love reassurance that those concerns were unfounded. Sure. That's what I would like. The, the War War III of it all, you know, as we talked about in an earlier segment, there is, there is yeah. a, there's a section of our American community that thinks that any discussion of the doomsday clock ticking closer to zero is alarmist um, and certainly can't be attributable to the foreign policy actions of the Biden administration. However, many of us feel differently, and many experts on nuclear e escalation have been warning mm -hmm. that that's, in fact, what is going on, and I think that is a very good question, a very real concern. I, had, I have a different question and concern, which is, if you presume, which I do not, to be clear, but if you presume there are kind of like valid military interests that the United States is interested in protecting that, it, that are contingent on certain technologies being in place, 
Why are these being outsourced to civilians in the first place? Why do we spend 10, more than the next 10 countries more, uh, on our military budget if we are concerned that a important military intervention is going to be foiled by a civilian who just happens to be rich well, and control this isn't, and control Well, this satellites. isn't an example of a contractor because there's no contract. Right. They're not paying Elon even, for this. They're not compensating. There's no worse. agreement in place, which is why he can turn it on and turn it off at, at will. If it was a contractor, they would have some, you know, if they were not providing the service, that we would, we would sue to get our money back or we'd fire them and get somebody else to do it. It, it, we're, I, I mean, the Ukraine has been <laughs> somewhat reliant, has been advantaged, and that Blinken actually responded very diplomatically because he didn't want to hurt, uh, I think, Musk's feelings because he does think this is an important service. But, and Glenn Greenwald made this point in a, a recent video, you played some of it for me before we started this um, conversation, where he points out that it just feels like Nothing is ever enough mm. in that you, you cannot ever be sufficiently committed to Ukraine's um, uh, uh, military campaign here. You're accused of being soft on Putin. Um, in this New York Times article, um, a, a senior advisor to Zelensky says that Musk's interference, again, with the technology that has belonged to him that he didn't grant for this use, that's interference that allowed Russia's naval fleet to continue firing cruise missiles at Ukrainian cities. Quote, as a result, civilians, children are being killed. This is the price of ignorance and ego. As a result, children are being killed because you didn't authorize, like it was, people are going to be blown up on the boats, yeah. right? People were, like, they're, I, I agree, I understand that Ukraine is fighting the defensive end of this, but people are dying because this war's going on, and and to not to you know if it's I, like I under I would understand if I owned the internet, um, the technology that was being used, even if on the defense and people were dying, you you would think through a little bit. Well, what am I actually authorizing? I mean, as as we're thinking through, is it right to send cluster bombs? Is it right to do all these things? Those, those are rational conversations. And just say, well, you have the blood of children on your hands because you didn't give us every last you know you didn't you didn't give us every single technological weapons sophisticated thing for us to continue our military efforts. That that seems not a fair way of thinking about it. Yeah, I mean, I I do think that there is a separate problem. Again, to the extent that you're invested in wars being dominated, controlled, and decided by governments because ostensibly there is some kind of democracy at work there, even though, as we've seen, the United States gets itself into these situations without any official congressional declaration of war. That aside, I think there is hypothetically an issue with what it means for certain people to have amassed such wealth that they can do things like independently construct technology. In this case, it's satellites. Maybe in somebody else's case, it's literal bombs or weapons that they're able to send to countries and have an effect on global military exchanges. You know, is, is that something that people are concerned about? I talk a lot about the reality that there being some people who are billionaires and have more wealth than countries, they constructively and, in fact, have an effect on our democracy because you can literally buy elections, especially now that some restrictions on campaign finance spending no longer exist post um, as Citizens United. You can think that that's an okay decision, but you also have to recognize that the, the reality is that you can have someone like Mayor Bloomberg entering into a race the last minute and charting on the board at the very least because of the pure power of being able to buy, spend a billion dollars on ads in various southern states the way that he did. So, you know, is there going to be an interest in taxing billionaire wealth, of putting restrictions on those kinds of things, if people do really have an investment and not having 
national diplomacy usurped by the actions of individuals who happen to have wealth and privilege, well, or do you just not care, and that's just the yeah, new I world mean, that we live this in? This case doesn't make a good... I mean, if, for people who are similar to us in our yeah. skepticism of some of the commitments the U.S. government is making... Um, in this example, right, like, what if Starlink was nationalized by the U.S. government? They would, they would, I think they'd be turning it on for the, uh, for the military operation in Sevastopol. I think, yeah. uh, I, I think that would, they'd be very likely to, to, to escalate um, the military conflict. So Yeah, I also think that constructively we have seen so many literal government actors who come from the defense mm -hmm. industry, manufacturer sector, that the idea of you know, Elon Musk kind of blurring those lines with the role that he's playing in terms of a support infrastructure for military action versus someone like Dick Cheney or um, uh, the current uh, guy, the, the black guy that everyone, when we criticized him being appointed, everyone was like, don't do it because he's black, uh, who came from Raytheon. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's maybe a distinction without a difference if they're still doing the bidding of the private military uh, weapons manufacturers from the inside of the White House versus the outside. But I do think regardless of that context, you have to look, you have to, you have to be thinking about these sorts of things. Do we have foreign policy that's being dictated by individuals who are profiting from weapon sales, et cetera? Do we have a foreign policy that is influenced by individual actors, for better or for worse, as opposed to anything with a democratic mechanism on it? And if, if so, is that, in fact, a problem that we want to reckon with? Yeah. I mean, as you said, we have the problem of just total—we have the unitary executive for the purpose of war-making, that there's no real checks. Um, from Congress, Congress has totally outsourced that responsibility to the office of the presidency, and thus, you know, the the, the people, the the people in Congress who are elected, you know, who have democratic. Account I mean, the president has some democratic accountability, obviously, but you know, Congress, the House is supposed to have even more democratic accountability. It comes up every two years, and uh, you know, we're, we're you know we're on the anniversary of 9/11 today. You know, two decades later, we're still we still have the Patriot Act, we still have the TSA, we still have. Um, all sorts of uh, infringements on our liberties, which I, I think the vast majority of Americans know do not make us any safer, that, I mean, that violate, that should actually have been found to violate the Constitution, and don't, don't enhance our safety one bit, and we're still living with them. And, and I, I don't think that's a minority view among the American public, uh, but nothing gets done or changed about it. Um, Congress shows no interest in doing anything about it, and then yeah. the you know bureaucracy, the federal bureaucracy that actually governs these things. Of course, they're not going to change it willingly. Yeah. So it's a, this is a obviously a somber day, a day to remember the loss that occurred, but I mean a day to remember of the of the very silly policy decisions that that were made and implement and became permanent that have not done anything that have not done us any good. Yeah, it was Lloyd Austin's whose name that blown out of my head. Um, but yeah, we'll be back tomorrow uh, here on Rising with some of the biggest news of the day. Yep, that does it for us for today, but it's just Monday. A lot more Rising to come this week. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who prefer to listen while you're on the move, we are now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. Take care.